I think that college is overrated these days. I think that there is absolutely nothing wrong with getting a trade. In fact, I would recommend getting a trade for many people or at least consider it. I shouldn't say recommend because I don't want to make a blanket statement out there. But if you don't know what you want to do when you graduate from high school, is there a trade that interests you? Because a machinist makes good money. You can become a machinist in a couple of years. Uh, You've always got something to fall back on and you're making good money. And you don't end up fifty to two, three hundred thousand dollars in debt going to school. And then maybe during that time you go, you know, I'd really like to be a philosopher, or maybe I want to be an economist, or maybe I want to be a Wall Street guy, a finance geek on Wall Street, and just make a huge amount of money. But you're not incurring all of that debt and have that burden on you. You know, if you're talking about things like economist, uh, yeah, that's going to be a college degree type thing. Uh, it's an academic type job. Anything that requires credentials, in other words. Would you go to a doctor that didn't go to have a university degree? Now, if you want a corporate job, then absolutely. You're, you need to go to college and get at least a bachelor's, if not a master's, or a doctor. What I'm saying is, is that society is really not working that way, and you should use critical thinking skills to question that belief. Reboots Rough Cuts, Episode 2, features Tom Kirkham, a longtime friend. He's an entrepreneur, philosopher, technology and automation guru, and oh my goodness, so much more. Tom is fascinated by self-education, critical thinking skills, and he is fluent with stuff like cryptocurrency and time-space compression, and he can even boil it down and make it interesting and relevant to somebody like me who can barely spell that stuff. Tom also knows what it's like to grieve and to deal with chronic illness in his life. When Tom decided to take life as it comes without blaming or judging other people, life and business became more about discovery and a whole lot less about fearing failure. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Tom, thanks for inviting us into your life today. I appreciate you taking a few minutes out to to visit with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Is that your FM DJ radio voice? <laughs> uh, yeah, only only I had to have a little bit of a country accent when I did KMAG 99.1 continuous hit country. <laughs> Ooh, that's almost, uh, that's really country. Well, yeah. It's more of a pop deal now, so. <laughs> that's true. This was the, this was the 90s and early 2000s, so. Um, tell me what your life is like today. I, I'm just blessed to know you as a friend, and, and it's fun to visit with you. I got you. I guess we get to talk a couple of times a month now. Just tell our guests what your life is like right now. Oh, wow. Well, a couple of three years ago, a lot of things, I had a bunch of things happen in my life. And after that, I reflected upon it and, you know, had a realization that time, it's the most uh, precious thing we have. It's the most valuable thing we own is time. And I really started 
thinking about what do I want to do? And so I began traveling. Some people might have at the time would probably seen it as escapism. And maybe it was to a certain degree. But I spent a lot of time traveling and getting to know other people, getting to know life and humanity. And that gave me a lot of time to reflect. It gave me a lot of time to think. And I was fortunate enough that at the time it was Kirkham Systems. Now it's called Kirkham IT or Kirkham.IT. There was somebody in place that I had taken steps to have somebody running the company during all of my tragedy. So I was, I was fortunate for that. So I just began traveling and pursuing interest, uh, whether it be through investments or Bitcoin or just seeing parts of the world I'd never been to before because it was always fascinating. I always enjoyed traveling, but for all of my life, work came first. And now it's, uh, it's not like that. Now I'm pursuing the things that I want to do. Can you enlighten us a little bit about the tragedy that occurred in your life that prompted this kind of renewed look at time and life? Yeah, uh, and I'll try to keep it as brief as I possibly can. But let's see, this was uh, probably around late 2013, but definitely during 2014. At first, my wife was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis. Finally, after brain surgery to confirm it, she was deteriorating at such a rate that uh, the neurologist that we had at the time, her name escapes me, but she's terrific. She used to be in Fort Smith, but she's in Northwest Arkansas. Oh, uh, Trimwell, Dr. Uh, Trimwell. Yeah, Margaret Trimwell, yeah. Margaret, yeah. And she's just wonderful. We we really lost a good one when she left the area. But regardless, my wife had multiple sclerosis and she was deteriorating rapidly. So the only way to confirm that diagnosis is actually get a brain sample, a brain tissue sample. So we went through the motions on that and confirmed it. And I know there's probably people out there listening and everybody knows someone that's got MS. And generally speaking, about 95% of the people that have it usually end up having a fairly normal life and they end up dying of something else. About 5% have basically what's called primary progressive and it's a dead end road. It's terminal and there's absolutely no treatment and she didn't respond to any treatment at all. And so I began caring for her as her body deteriorated and things like that. At the same time, I uh, went through a lot of back pain and ended up uh, in an emergency room in Louisiana on a visit, taking her to see her family it was excruciating back pain. He said, "Your all your organs check out fine." Oh, I had a, uh, um, I had something else to, I forgot what it was, but it was really bad. And, it, and the doctor come out and said, "Well, normally I come out and tell people to get your affairs in order, but everything looks fine here. But get it checked out." I got it checked out. I had a spinal infection from a very rare bacteria. Uh, doctor Carey is still here in town. He's an infectious disease guy. He had never seen it before. In fact, we didn't even know what it was until we got it DNA tested. Mm. They couldn't find it in the, the hospital. Anyway, I went through about a little over 80 days of uh, every single day getting infusions, high-strength antibiotics, spent every single day in the hospital. I'm taking care of my wife. But they had checked me into the hospital, run this barrage of tests on me. 
So one of the tests that came up was you need to get a colonoscopy. And so I said, well, once we found out I had a spinal infection, then, you know, I said, well, I've already got this scheduled. I might as well go through it. Ended up having a precancerous stem, but in the colonoscopy part, uh, discovered that I was a free bleeder and almost bled to death. Ended up in the ICU and mercy overnight. Won't go into gory details about that, but I had surgery to remove that. And then they uncovered prostate cancer, and I had surgery removed that. And they found some other stuff that's just chronic conditions. I've, I've got chronic arthritis. But regardless of all that, I was treating all of those things while I was taking care of her. And, and I did that for a simple reason. Dr. Trimwell made a comment to me because she knew what both of us were going through. And she goes, you are a perfect candidate for the caregiver dying first. And that's why I went ahead and treated all of these things. And to me, it was all mechanical. Her health problems were mechanical. To me, it was mechanical. It was, it was about tactical execution of just fixing things and accepting what's coming and the inevitability of it. And because people would, you know, they would ask me, how are you coping with it? And I, I go, well, I, I'm just doing it. Oh, sure. Did I have times where I'd go in the bathroom and, you know, and cry for 15 or 20 minutes? Yeah, I did that once or twice a week, especially, you know, the last six months or so. But it wasn't about me. That wasn't why I was crying. And it wasn't about the situation. I just felt terrible about my wife and knowing there's nothing that can be done. Even I mean, we tried everything. I mean, there was nothing I couldn't put her on an airplane and fly anywhere in the world and, and fix it. It's just there was nothing to be done. So anyway, I was pretty much fixed just about the time she passed away. And that's when the escapism for the travel and all that stuff started kicking in. And it gave me perspective on this thing we call life, as Prince would say. Hmm. And that's when I began doing all the traveling and doing a lot of reflection upon my own life. That's a lot, Tom. That is a lot in what, maybe 12 to 14 months to have to handle. And, you know, in a minute, you and I are going to dive into some stoic philosophy. And I'm fascinated by it. And you and I talk about stoicism a lot and how we approach life. And as I listen to your story, the most fascinating part to me, just beyond the pain of knowing that my friend has experienced so much, is that you acknowledged when the pain was just too much and how you handled it. And then you have been able to go back to your approach of saying, this isn't about me. And so my mindset in, in these moments is really important. How do you do that? How do you acknowledge emotions that aren't really helpful, but that are real, and then go back to the principles of working the problem as best you can? You know, I don't have a simple answer for that. I had been reading on stoicism and things like that kind of all my life, but especially in the last four or five years when this thing, even before this thing really kicked in, I'd really started getting into it more and more. And, you know, if you listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast, I mean, that's one of his big deals. So he kind of got me into thinking about it more and more and more. And I'm just not one of those people that just wring their hands and woe is me and dwell on the hopelessness because that's not productive. You know, identify the problem, 
and identifying the solution. And as you alluded to, yeah, first principles comes into play. You know, whenever I'm going through all the research in MS, there's there's something that the typical treatment may not be suitable. Maybe there is something else. So we went down that road a little bit, but it just all happened so fast and she had deteriorated so fast. Even those weren't going to help, you know. Uh, looking back on it, if I'd begun something a little sooner, the outcome might have been at least somewhat different, but I seriously doubt it. I don't really have any regrets because those aren't helpful either. That's a waste of time. And everyone has regrets, and you should remember them and remember your mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's wrong at some point in life, but that's not productive either. And that's just the way I'm wired. You know, I'm a troubleshooter by nature. You know, I'm a nerd by nature. <laughs> so uh, uh, th- that's it. You know, okay, we've got this issue. How do we deal with it? And that served you well with uh, Kirkham IT and then with something else you're involved in, Really Seen. You, with Really Seen, you, ha- you have said to a couple of really brilliant people, you guys go do this and I'll solve the technology problem. Is that is that right? Kind of how that works? Well, it's identifying the the technological issues. You know, in this day and age, if any organization that doesn't treat IT as a critical part of the infrastructure, practically any company, you're you're missing out. And for those that don't want to know, I can tell right off the bat who a good leader is. If someone's a leader of a company and they express that I don't understand technology and I don't want to understand technology, I know that company is living on borrowed time. Wow. Because it's a fact. And and actually, they're generally not a good fit for Kirkham IT because it just doesn't work for us. We Not only are we partners with our clients, we we assume and expect and we actually qualify our clients on being philosophically on that same page. Otherwise, we generally don't accept them as a client. I mean, IT is something that is serious. It needs to be treated as an investment, and uh, especially with security and everything. But more than that, well, not more than that, but as important as security is productivity. That's basically what IT is. So, when you're doing a marketing company, of course, you've got to have somebody that's into sales. You've got to have somebody to execute marketing messaging. But fundamentally, from a digital response or a direct digital response or what we call precision marketing. And this is what Really Seen is. Right. Really Seen does precision marketing. And, and what that means is, is through technology, through tools like SharpSpring or HubSpot or Infusionsoft, these these tools are autoresponders, and uh, they create campaigns depending upon the user's response to emails or non-response to emails or newsletters or webinars. Those processes are automated in order to sometimes pre-qualify them. Sometimes it's just ramping them up to educate them that may take time to nurture But more importantly, all of those things are done at scale. So if you were to do these things manually, it would be a very poor use of your time. It would take a lot of manpower. When you're dealing with hundreds of people and you can automate many of those things, you can bring them along a lot faster and do it much, much more efficiently. And and it's not just robotic stuff, right? You can you can create these emails and and they're very natural. And it, and it, this isn't about manipulating people. It's in fact it's as much about 
if you're not interested, we want to get, get you out of there, right? But we can tell by their responses to certain communications, whether it's an email or a newsletter or something like that, we can determine if they're a good candidate for whatever the product or service is, and we can drop them into the uh, sales funnel, or we can disqualify them, or just put them on a different list that, hey, they're interested, but maybe they're just not, they, they like our stuff, but they just don't want to buy anything. Or maybe that's not their position today. Maybe five years from now, it might be their position, if you know what I mean. This is for a business that knows they're leaving money on the table by not being involved digitally somehow, right? Maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Because the days of just sending out a newsletter, it's pretty much over. I mean, those electronic newsletter. There's still a market for printed newsletter. I mean, we still, I'm still very interested in the analog world too, especially in these days where everybody gets newsletters and everybody's oversubscribed to those. And sometimes it's hard to rise to the top in an email, whereas a printed piece may perform a different function and actually get somebody in a sales funnel that the automated marketing may not be able to do. So it's a, it's a multifaceted approach coordinated approach, a strategic way to think about executing your marketing plan over months and years, because marketing is not something you do for three months and then try something new. Yeah. It's something that, that takes time and then more time and then more time and many, many failures during that. So if the best thing you can do is, well, I'm not, I'm just going to bank on sending out a newsletter and a contact form. And then you try that for three months and you go, well, that didn't work. Well, that's, that's not it. That's just one piece of it. You have to look at multiple campaigns and then, yeah, sure, maybe call a certain campaign that did not work for you. But you've got so many things going at once that something has to click. And then you just keep trying new campaigns. But a campaign is simply just, a, is just one single campaign in a big marketing plan. So you have to do a lot of different things. You know, it's amazing to me. There's a book from like the 80s, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, Reese and Trout, two brilliant marketers. And even though they're talking about technology that doesn't exist anymore, they are still spot on in 2018 because it's about frequency and consistency. That is how we win the battle for people's minds. And that's what you're talking about. Three months is not going to even come close to letting you know whether or not most campaigns are going to work. Yeah. And not only that, you're totally ignoring the long tail, you know. Oh, yeah. The long tail, for those that don't know, is uh, the best example is Amazon. When they first started, they were selling books. Well, since all the books were centralized, they could keep books in stock that only one person in the United States or North America or in the world would buy one book a year, but they could keep that in stock. The neighborhood bookstore could not do that. Well, in the beginning, Amazon sold so many of these books that are in the long tail versus the best sellers that they actually got more revenue and profits from these onesies and twosies and, you know, 20 books a year sales because there's thousands and thousands of these. They actually made more money off the long tail than they did off of selling the best sellers. So you can think about that in your business as well. 
each campaign could be targeting just one part of that long tail audience. So let's say you have a thousand customers and 10 of them would buy this one service from you. And it's a lucrative service. It's very profitable. It's very useful for just these 10 people. But it's very useful and it's very critical. And it's the one thing that differentiates you. Or maybe you've got five of these, but it's one thing that differentiates you from everybody else. Well, if you do have five or 10 of these different things, you've got five or 10 different campaigns out in the long tail that the next thing you know, you've got 50 or 100 new sales for a part of your business that is probably more lucrative than the main part of your business. And by automating it, it solves a lot of the 80% and 20% rule, you know? So really seeing will help you identify the potential long tails. It helps you collect data. I mean, all day long we can say, I think this will work, and then you try it, but really seeing collects enough data to tell you whether or not you're on the right track and if there's maybe some sort of a sleeper out there that you weren't even thinking would work, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you see their behavior. And to some people, it's a little creepy, but this thing is, it, it's really not. If it's used properly, I mean, everybody experiences it all the time. And it's not about selling the customer's data that's a whole different animal in and of itself. So all the stuff you've heard, this negative stuff that's going on with Facebook and all of that. Well, those companies, if you're doing digital marketing on your own, well, your business is selling your products and services. Facebook, Google, their business is selling their users. So the way they sell their users is their user data. Well, if you're doing digital marketing to sell other products and services, that data, not only do you not want to sell, I mean, it's actually counterproductive to even sell that data because that's the most valuable thing that you have. So it's very important that you protect your user's privacy when it comes to doing direct marketing as well. And respect, you know, Seth Godin goes into this. If you don't respect those end users as well, you're not being sincere in your marketing. And that's another thing that we want to do as well. It's, it's that tribal instinct. It's like, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier before we got on the air about Apple products, Tesla products. Those things have a tribe. Those products have a tribe. And a good direct marketing can spur that tribe to make purchases and be happy that they made those purchases. Shifting gears a little bit, see what I did there. You're about to, to uh, go hang out with some of your Tesla stockholders, right? Yes. I almost did not go this year because I've just been traveling way too much. In fact, I'm not even going to spend the night. I'm going to get the red eye. I'm going out in the morning, go to the meeting in the afternoon and get the red eye flight coming home. So I'm not even going to stay in a hotel. But uh, this happens every year. This will be my fourth or fifth year. And I sit up every time uh, on the second row behind Usually the executives and the major shareholders. I'm just, I'm a nothing to these people. But um, I usually sit right behind them because I get there early and it's first come, first serve. And so Elon Musk is like 15 feet from me and he's just right there. So and he, it's nothing he, fancy. He probably spits on you, doesn't he? You know, I think he hits the front row. <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, he the whole time is talking about Tesla. It would be fascinating for him to go into SpaceX and... Neuralink is his newest project that just 
really fascinates me. It's not in the news or, or it's getting a lot of press, but that is uh, it's part of his AI initiative. He has started talking about Solar City since Tesla acquired Solar City, but it's usually about the cars and what's coming and where they're at. And they clear up things about, you know, this deal where they were accused that they wouldn't be around without government subsidies. And that's simply untrue. And he walks you through those steps. And not last year, but the year before, he actually spent four and a half hours on stage. And I was actually tired of hearing him then. I said, okay, let's wrap this thing up. I'm, I'm done. These chairs are not comfortable. This isn't a fancy production. It's really just him on a slideshow. And it's like two or 300 people. But you know what's fascinating about that group of people? And this, it just hit me like a ton of bricks when I, the first time I went. There is not a single person in that room as an investor that bought that stock on the recommendation of a broker or a financial advisor because you wouldn't do it. Every single person in there, you could say drink the Kool-Aid, but I like to think of it as every single person in there is a visionary and electric cars are really aren't that weird. A hundred years ago, they were about a third of the market. They were steam, electric and internal combustion. And if you would ask anybody, an expert or a futurist before the model T started rolling off the line, they would have said, well, electric is going to be the way to go. So this isn't something new. But what changed was is Henry Ford mastered the mass production part of it. He went to first principles of manufacturing and, and automated and automated and automated. And it brought the cost of the production of the vehicle way, way, way down. So, and that's how internal combustion became the dominant vehicle. And the engine, the internal combustion became the main engine that dominates today. So it's really not that weird, but if you don't understand motors and transportation and things from a first principle standpoint, you wouldn't realize how much more efficient and so many other things that electric has an advantage over internal combustion. We've seen steam go. So the internal combustion engine is going to go that way as well. You also travel a lot for Bitcoin meetings too. Kind of run down why you do that and what you learn when you go, not just about what's on stage, but people watching. I love to hear your stories about people watching. I think our listeners will too. Oh, oh gosh. I, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, first of all, the Bitcoin environment is similar to Tesla, except it's more Wild West, right? It's the wild, wild West of uh I don't know, investing these days, I guess. In fact, in my mind, Bitcoin and investing in Teslas, I don't think there's any risk in either one. But on the outside looking in, I could certainly see where somebody would say, well, Bitcoin is just crazy. But when you understand the fundamentals of, well, I've, one of the episodes I've already put up is you don't know what money is. Well, it, once you just grasp what money actually is and isn't, that could be your aha moment to understanding what Bitcoin is. But uh, there's a lot of interesting people. There's people like Charlie Shrim, who I saw in Miami January of this year. He was one of the first guys that actually sold Bitcoin for currency on the street. And because he was the first guy through the door, he ended up going to prison for money laundering. And, it's, it, and all he was doing is something that banks do every single day 
but because it was so new and it was so scary and everybody, and it had a bad reputation for, you know, that's what people used to buy drugs and organized crime and terrorism and all these other things. It was scary and threatening. So th- those types of things are, are getting sorted out. And over the next 10 or 15 years, they'll be sorted out even more and more. Uh, well, kids today are going to grow up just knowing that they can transfer money instantly without having to talk to a bank. But uh, there is a lot of interesting people in that business. And you've talked about first principles here. You've used the language and talked about your podcast. Now's a really good time to move into what first principles is all about. And you're right. I I don't think I'm interested in Bitcoin, but I loved your episode about money. It was fascinating. And I don't even think I cared about money, but you talked about wampum and how currency came to be. Tell me about what First Principles is all about and how you're able to use that podcast to help teach other people about all that you learn from going to these meetings, as well as the massive amount of reading and study you do? You know, in the case of Bitcoin, I watched a lot of uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, who I actually saw in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. He's he's kind of like the unofficial Bitcoin spokesperson that is truly doing it out of a love and a fascination of the technology. He doesn't really have an axe to grind. You know, he's not sponsoring these initial coin offerings or he's not shilling for something, right? But I guess to answer your question is I take all of those different things, uh, whether it's a YouTube video or it's books or the travel, and it really takes all of those things. I don't think I would be as passionate about Tesla if I didn't go to these shareholders meetings every year Uh, because there's things there that just talking with the people that are your fellow shareholders, everyday people, that some of them are in their 80s. Some of them are 17, 15 years old. You're not going to get that through reading a book or watching a YouTube video. And you're not going to meet those people, chances are, unless you're there in person. Same thing at Bitcoin. And it's a synthesizing of all of the different avenues and drinking all of those things in. And so I use a journal to keep notes of different things. So if I'm at the Bitcoin conference, it's amazing what you can learn just sitting at the bar when the the shows closes up at four o'clock in the afternoon, go have a beer at the bar and you're sitting next to a multimillionaire. They're doing a startup. It may be uh, something to do with the equities market where they're putting stocks on the blockchain, just different angles that you wouldn't be exposed to just on the normal speaker engagement because it's such a wild, wild west of things. The same thing with the Tesla shareholders. I'm usually there a couple hours ahead of time. We're all sitting there at the Computer History Museum. How cool is that? Hmm. Uh, The Computer History Museum in San Jose, California is where they have it every year. And it's got all of the, you know, all the computers or many of the computers that have been invented for the whole world. Uh, They've even got one of the original Babbage machines, the old mechanical ones from the early 1800s. But, you know, you got to synthesize those. And what I help to do with the podcast is to take all of these different inputs, distill them down to my aha moments, and then try to relate them 
to everybody using an analogies and other illustration methods in a way that is easier and quicker to learn. I've been in the Bitcoin deal. I've been dabbling in it practically since it was created, but I only got serious about it about four or five years ago. It really took me two years to where I go, oh, this is all clicking for me now. What I hope to do with first principles is to shorten that time frame and to offer people that, you know, I want to know what Bitcoin is, but I don't have two years to get into it. And I'm hoping that over the course of 10 hours or maybe six hours of podcast episodes that they'll experience one or two or three aha moments to where it all just clicks and then it makes sense for them and they make an informed decision if it's something they want to participate in somehow. I can't help but think about your earlier story about how you attacked medical issues, very serious medical issues, how much easier it was to trust your physicians, because I know you well enough to know you did a ton of your own homework, and that's what you're doing here. So you pretty much are able to know when someone is shilling for something because it benefits them or when there's some truth in that. And I think you you were kind enough to fill out a little questionnaire before, and this just totally rocks me, uh, a childhood story and where your entrepreneurial roots come from. This is so you, Tom, that you've always had a curiosity. You've always questioned everything. And here you say, I was the kid in Bible school that raised his hand and said, uh, how did Moses get those platypuses to that part of the world? This is <laughs> This is so you. Now, you know, you you come into situations with an incredibly skeptical viewpoint and you study and then how cool of you to share. Yeah, that was a question. Uh, no, it was a comment. <laughs> Riff off it. Oh, well, <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and actually, I I did make a I, I did make a question in early Bible school because I, I remember my grandmother telling me because I was living or staying with them during the summers when I was going to Bible school. I remember her saying we well, shouldn't ask questions like that, and I'm like, I, I think it might have been about the the fish. Who was it that lived in the fish for three days or whatever? I forgot the story. That's Jonah. But, Jonah, yeah. Not Moses. I, it might have been about Jonah living in a fish. And I go, how does that work yeah. with, don't you need air? You know, yeah. you know, I, I, whatever the question was, it was one of those things. Oh, so we and, shouldn't uh, ask questions that make other people uncomfortable, right? No. <laughs> uh, I, I think that in all seriousness, I think it depends on how you go about that. If you ask it with the attitude that you're lying or you were somehow questioning or judging my comment, then it creates an antagonistic dialogue that is unproductive for both parties. I was simply asking a question that to me was just made perfect sense. I wasn't saying in these types of question, when I question a doctor, I'm not saying you're lying to me. I'm really just saying, help me understand. And in the case of a physician, well, you know, I've, I respect the fact that Margaret Trimwell was educated at Park Lane University in one of the best neurocenters in, in the country. I respect that. I respect that she's got 30 years of experience. I respect what she did with the Stroke Center at Sparks. But I also know that she's got many other patients, and they're not all MS patients, and she doesn't see that many primary progressive patients. 
So when you look at her overall patient level, which let's just say, I don't know, but let's just say she has three to 500 patients. Well, if my wife is only one or five that she has in the course of a year, well, that's less experience. So there's a burden on me to educate myself to make informed decisions on the course of treatment. So I still respect the experience, but when in, the, in those cases where it's something extremely rare or relatively rare in her case, if you just blindly accept what you're being told, you're really just running at the luck of that doctor doing the right thing. And doctors don't run 100%. Every single doctor is not the best doctor out there. I mean, you just have to accept the fact that, you know, I had at one point I had 12 specialists, I think, give or take. Well, I know that a certain percentage of those are, yeah, they're average. Maybe even half of them. I know that there was a couple that was absolutely fantastic. But I also know there was a couple that I could even point out flaws in the way they their business ran that <laughs> led me to believe they're not thinking through everything or that they had less experience and things like that. So, but it, it's really important though that, it's okay to question. It's just how you go about it. Don't accuse somebody of misleading you or lying to say, wait a minute, I, that, help me understand. That that takes us to one of the habits that you point to as being something that's helped change you, that even when you evaluate situations like that, you have made a conscious decision to quit judging people. Explain that. Well, I would say I, I still do. And I, I think that I always will, but I try to be, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. And the best way I can describe it is, is if you're judging their actions, try as you may, unless you're that exact person, you may not understand their motivation. Something that may seem absolutely crazy to do may in their mind makes sense or be totally rational and you shouldn't judge somebody particular actions, be empathetic, try to understand it. But even if you still can't understand it and you may never understand it and most times you probably won't, there's no judging that should take place there because you don't know their history. You don't know what's going through their brain. You, they could be being perfectly rational, but you just simply don't have all the pieces of information. Of course, it goes without saying you don't judge a book by its cover. So you try never, never to judge somebody on their appearance. I think one of my sayings is, is uh, even clowns and children can have terrific ideas, right? <laughs> you know, even a clown can come up with a really good idea, but you, you see a clown, right? They're, ah, you know, they're just being funny, but eh, they might have a good idea. Just take the concept as a concept, not who the, the person is that's delivering it. Is that concept sound? Is it rational? Does it require more understanding or more consideration before just dismissing it out of hand because a clown told you? Wow. And I don't think there's anybody that is so pure that they would not do any judging. And I catch myself thinking, wait a minute, I, I hastily responded or judged this particular thing irrationally. And I need to reconsider what was going on there. And what's weird is that when we judge other people, we're not hurting the, that person. We're kind of 
selling ourselves short of the opportunity to learn something, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a cost opportunity. I mean, you're burning your brain energy up just judging people in and of itself. And and then if you simply don't have enough information to and it, and it has no bearing on your life, why question motives in the first place? I mean, that that's just that's just using up time that could be better applied pursuing something that you're passionate about, a hobby, traveling, learning new topics. That's time that can be better utilized. And I find myself each and every single day questioning, what am I doing at this very moment? Is it a waste of time? Now, I'll sit there and watch two and a half men for an hour because sometimes I need to unload and and just have some fun or go to a movie and have some fun. But those are deliberate decisions to do that. And if your default position, you know, you get off work is to – just to jump on the couch, get a bag of lays and sit there and watch four hours of two and a half men, then maybe that's something to consider. Is that something you need to do every day? Can you better apply your time to get more enjoyment out of life? Because it's short. Well, Seneca says it's not short. We just waste it, but it's coming. You're going to die. As far as I know, no one has escaped that. You can't buy your way out of death. This is a Reboots Rough Cuts episode, edited, mixed, and mastered by Mikhail Kozenkov. I'm Tracy Wenchel, and this special series has been inspired by a, a conversation with Mikhail and a group of fellow podcasters during which I expressed frustration and concern about a backlog of beautiful stories that have been growing metaphorical dust on my hard drive because I just hadn't gotten around to editing them and publishing them yet. Mikhail offered to help me clear the backlog and to crank out as many episodes as possible by the close of 2018. And this is one of those dozen interviews that will most certainly bring hope to many listeners, maybe even you. Now, if you're a podcaster who is overwhelmed with post-production, or maybe you're not sure how to edit your own podcast, and you want a personal step-by-step walk through the editing and mixing process, or maybe you just want your podcast to sound the very best it can and not have to worry about the editing stage at all, you're going to want to get in touch with my friend Mikhail. Here's how you get in touch with him. It's podcastsoundfixer at gmail.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. You, you have such a passion for learning and then teaching other people what you have learned in a much quicker fashion. You also have a passion for critical thinking skills. Tell me about how the Kirkham Foundation sort of fuses those two interests together and helps other people. Well, critical thinking skills are a first principle of learning. If you understand logic and critical thinking and skepticism, that is the very foundation of the scientific method. It's the very foundation of learning. And especially in public schools, these days it's more and more rote learning. 
memorizing things. It's not getting into the first principles of understanding motives. I had a real problem. I was, I was great at math. As long as I understood where the math problems were taking me, what the goal was. And as you go up in math, when you go from algebra and trig and, uh, and calculus, it takes a lot longer. You know, when you're, when you're learning algebra, it takes a lot longer to understand why algebra is useful. And so I had to stop and say, where is this taking us and get the teacher to explain it to me because I didn't understand where it was taking me. I was using my critical thinking skills to say, how, what use is this to me? There are 35 million humans who still don't understand why algebra is important. Would you back up real quick and tell us why? I I would like to, but I've forgotten why algebra is important. (laughs) I, I used to know a great example of a quadratic equation applied to real life, but I, I've completely forgotten it. If I'd known I was going to get that question, I would have Googled it before we got on the show. Okay. So critical thinking skills are, are really important, and thus the Kirkham Foundation. Right. And so I think uh, that one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're doing things to encourage that in young adults and awarding scholarships. And these scholarships don't have to be for college. I think it's very I, – I think that college is overrated these days. I think that there is absolutely nothing wrong with getting a trade. In fact, I would recommend getting a trade for many people or at least consider it. I shouldn't say recommend because I don't want to make a blanket statement out there. But if you don't know what you want to do when you graduate from high school, is there a trade that interests you? Because a machinist makes good money. You can become a machinist in a couple of years. Uh, You've always got something to fall back on, and you're making good money, and you don't end up fifty dollars or $300,000 in debt going to school. And then maybe during that time you go, you know, I'd really like to be a philosopher, or maybe I want to be an economist, or maybe I want to be a Wall Street guy, a finance geek on Wall Street, and just make a huge amount of money. But you're not incurring all of that debt and have that burden on you. So it's kind of like Mike Rowe. He's, he's big into trade schools. We, Our society in America especially has, for the last several decades, have kind of had this default position that, well, if you're not smart enough to go to college, learn a trade. That's not the way it should be because that, that is absolutely not true. So, but anyway, what the Kirkham Foundation is to get people to apply critical thinking skills through book reports that we award scholarships on. And with critical thinking, maybe you'll discover what you want to do a lot quicker or sooner than you would have if you just let life unroll in front of you, you know, when you're 18 or 25. So it was probably. Gosh, I think I was like 25 before I really wanted, really realized what I wanted to do as far as a college career goes, but I just never was able to finish it. I got, you know, business got in the way. But uh, I'd still go back to college today to be an economist if I had to do it all over again. Yeah, but you, the kind of education you're giving yourself by going to these cutting edge kind of, man, that's a, such a stupid word too. Cutting edge, there I used it again conventions and opportunities to network, do you really need a college degree to become an economist when you have access to people like that? Well, you know, if you're talking about things like economist, uh, yeah, that's going to be a college degree type thing. Uh, It's an academic type job. You know, you got your economist. uh, I would say law is one of them, but I think up until recently in, in the state of Louisiana, you didn't have to have a degree. You could be a lawyer without a college degree. 
but anything that requires credentials. In other words, would you go to a doctor that didn't go to have a university degree? But in the IT business, it's not uncommon at all for people not to have college degrees. Bill Gates doesn't have one. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have one. The list is long. Well, Elon Musk doesn't have a college degree. I don't think. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. And uh, it's not as critical. Now, if you want a corporate job, if you're still from that environment that says the sure way to move through life and to take care of your family and to make a nice living is you go to college, you get a degree, and you go to work for a Fortune 500 company. If you're of that mindset, then absolutely, you're, you know, you, you need to go to college and get at least a bachelor's, if not a master's or a doctor. What I'm saying is, is that society is really not working that way, kind of like you alluded to, and you should use critical thinking skills to question that belief from a first principle standpoint. Do I, is that really the smart thing, knowing that having a job for 10 years these days is kind of unusual? The same job, the same company? Use first principles and critical thinking skills, and you'll realize that there's multiple paths Many of them right. There's not one way. We don't live in the 50s and 60s and 70s anymore, or even the 80s for that matter. Things are happening. Time has been compressed so much for human beings through automation, technology, and all of that. And it's accelerating all the time that we all have before us the opportunity to learn anything we want. The entire wealth of human knowledge is on the Internet it's so critical to have internet access to educate yourself on things. Uh, one of my podcasts is with a CEO of a company that actually curates content around many different subjects, and it's all free. And they curate content because if you go to YouTube and just start Googling Bitcoin stuff, well, there's thousands and thousands of Bitcoin topics and videos. How do you know which one's a good one? Yeah, how do you know? And well, yeah, so his company, and it escapes me at the moment, but his company curates these things, writes them, and turns people on to the good speakers. And I don't know if they have a specific uh, set of you know, so-called classes on Bitcoin, but if they did, it would include Andreas Antonopoulos because he is probably the best person to learn Bitcoin from. Yeah, shoot me a link to that, and we'll put it in the show yeah, notes. Well, even, even his stuff is not linear, right? He And he speaks at different levels. And some of his speaks, you know, 45 minutes to an hour is on Bitcoin 101. And the next time it's in a postgraduate type environment where he's talking about code and detailed stuff like, you know, lightning and all these fundamentals that if you're just starting out, you don't want to get exposed to. And so I'm trying to organize a lot of his stuff as well as I do my own thing and just try to keep it to where I'm staying in the uh, – you know, the, the 101, the 201 series of courses, 301, um, that sort of thing. Before we start worrying about, you know, atomic swaps and all these other things that are more of a postgraduate type show. Yeah, I was doing good just to understand your money episode. Look. Uh, <laughs> all we did was talk about wampum and tally stick. It's awesome, though. It was but, really cool. You but, did it in an interesting way, and you were hilarious when you said that uh, Nixon put gold in his drawer or something. That was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, with a sticky note that said, this is Francis. <laughs> yes. This is Francis Gold. Yes. That's basically, you know, obviously it was a joke, but, you know, it's not that far from the truth. 
But uh, you know what was really fascinating about the wampum thing to me is, you know, we've heard all of our lives that can you believe the Indians swapped the island of Manhattan for beads? Yeah. And this is an aha moment, right? And the show, I hope, does a better job of making that work for you than this brief moment that I'm going to go through it. But to the Europeans and the Indians, that wampum was money. It wasn't just beads. It was actually money. I mean, in probably 30 years or maybe it would be 100 years, they may say the same thing about, can you believe that the United States bought Louisiana Purchase with just using paper money? And when you start understanding that money is it's just what we all agree is worth something and that we can exchange it for physical things or services in the real world, that little mechanism, whether it's wampum or pieces of paper, we just agree that that's what it's worth. When you can make that leap, then wampum was just as serious to both parties at the time. Even yeah. the Europeans could not mass produce it at that time. But it was just as serious to the Europeans to give it to them as it was for the Indians to receive it. So they both took it on value, and they both thought it was a fair trade. It wasn't necessarily about taking advantage of the American Indians because it was money at that point in time. Right. We could talk another three hours, but I need to respect your time because you said when we first started, time is the most valuable thing we possess. And you are running a couple of businesses and building a podcast and working on the Kirkham Foundation. So I've got a couple of quick questions for you. What advice or encouragement do you have for somebody who has a great idea, but she doesn't have any idea how to get started? First thing to do is do a strategic analysis of the competition in the market. Understand their pricing. Understand as best you can the profits or lack thereof. And look at it from a first principle. I mean, can you make money at this? What's the, the ultimate goal? You know, a lot of people think that being an entrepreneur takes guts. But there's a difference between being a gambler and starting a successful business. It is a gamble, but you do it if, if, to have a successful business. You go into it understanding the things that you may not be comfortable in, whether it's the accounting side of it, whether it's profit margin. I, I think the biggest thing that most entrepreneurs get into very often is to thinking they need to get their prices low at first to establish market share. I, I'd give that a lot of thought. In some cases, that's a good strategy, but not as often as I see it happening. Just think it through every aspect of it. How much is it going to cost to marketing? How much, how much, if it's a retail store, where, where are you going to put it? What's the traffic numbers on that street? How are you going to reach out? If it's an online business, how are you going to reach out to your, your prospects or your, your potential customers or clients? You, you really got to look at all of these things at the very basic level and use them to drive the numbers and to minimize the risk. Discover as many things as possible that could go wrong up front. And oh, by the way, one of the first suggestions you had was to understand the competition. It is not a good thing if there is no one doing what you want to do. There is a reason in every interstate city in America, there is a whole cluster of chain restaurants right off the interstate. Competition is good. Right. But I'll, I would counter that with uh, 
Elon Musk question, why can't we use rockets over and over again? Why does it cost so much to send a rocket into space? Why can't we build and make electric cars not look goofy, perform as good or better than internal combustion, give a long range, and drive coast to coast? Why can't we do that? Because nobody else was doing it. And both of those endeavors are very, very successful. Yeah, that's true. There's only been two companies that haven't declared bankruptcy in the automobile industry, and that's Ford Motor Company and Tesla. All the rest of them declared bankruptcy in the United States. That's true. Interesting. Gen- General Motors, yeah. Chrysler. Yep. Of course, Chrysler and Chrysler, they're, they're owned by, uh, I think, Fiat now. But yeah. Well, they were owned by Mercedes. Now they're owned by Fiat. So Yeah, I lost track on that one. Okay, last question. <laughs> this is going to be really difficult for you, but I, I try to ask all of our guests this. Is there a, a book or a program, even a YouTube video you'd recommend to somebody else? On what topic? That's kind of the, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that there were some seminal books that I've read uh, most recent, well, three or four years ago that really changed my thinking. And the one was the bi- the Ashley Vance biography of Elon Musk. And and I, and I don't look at Elon Musk as a as some sort of hero that I worship. I use these biographies and you know reading about Steve Jobs and people like that. I use those as a, a tool to understand how their mind works. And in the case of Elon Musk, it was like how does he commit himself to four or five different companies or six? I think he might have now, and still maintain a high level of performance. So Ashley Vance's of Elon Ashley Vance's biography of Elon Musk is is a terrific book, especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, because he walks you through the whole thing with PayPal and, and all of that, how he got to where, you know, he had a rocket company and Tesla and almost lost both of them. The other one, Seneca uh, Letters to a Stoic, I think, was the ones that made me start thinking about time and how precious and valuable it is. The rest of it's books on logic. Of course, I, I, I've always understood that. If you're good at math and you've ever had a, a logic course, you understand Venn diagrams, if-then statements, uh, being skeptical, those will get you there. Those are first principles. So that's two that come to mind. There's a couple of other books that you create your own luck. You know, Serendipity, I, and I, I wish I'd found it before we got on here, but the more you try, the more connections you make. Those serendipity and those moments of luck just seem to happen more and more. A positive outlook on life creates more luck. So it's not someone remarked to us one time that it's really about who you know. No, it's really about your attitude in life. And if you have a positive outlook on life, those things are going to come to you a lot better, a lot more often. So that's kind of all I got for that right now. Yeah. Tom, thank you for inviting us into your life. I sure do appreciate it. And um, I'm even more grateful for your friendship and for the opportunity to just get to hang out with you. You're you're a fun guy to know, and I, I treasure your friendship. Thank you. Well, same here. And I have enjoyed being on your show. And you do a terrific job of uh, kind of digging in and going through people's thoughts and why they think that way. And How come their life is better now? Yeah. You're a great story. Thank you, my friend. My pleasure. Now, for more information about Tom's 
fascinating learning and teaching pursuits like time, space, compression, and cryptocurrencies, check out TomKirkham.com. A link is in the show notes at RebootsPodcast.com, RR02. I'm Tracy Wenchel. We'll see you next time. Deo Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, RebootsPodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom. Gosh, I forgot again, Tracy. You were leading me on to something. What was this Stupid ass way to phrase it anyway, so let's just back up and see. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, so much for trick cutting back on your post production work. It's all right.